Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Today, Mike and I are joined by Jason. I don't know if you want to give your last name. Some people are a little secretive, but Jason is a longtime listener, first-time guest. And uh, yep. so if you would, <laughs> what is this, the price is freaking right? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> don't come to us for knowledge. It's for the entertainment, damn it. I live with both, to be honest. <laughs> All right, Jason. So uh, go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm Jason. Uh, I run specialized rescue teams for the wildfires out west as a contractor. Been doing that for about six years now. Been an EMS for right around 17 years total between EMT and paramedic. Was one of the first guys along with you to take the WPC exam. And I'm a fellow in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine. And I'm also a fume from the World Extreme Medicine folks. So been basically playing in the backcountry all my life between hunting, search and rescue, EMS stuff in, in rural Pennsylvania here and did some time in the army and, you know, kind of kind of wanted to find something a little bit more challenging than street EMS and get out of the grind, so to speak. So jumped into the, the wildland fire industry kind of full tilt and haven't looked back since. So I've been running technical rescue teams out there for six years of the seven that I've been on, been on the line out there. So it's a, it's been an awesome experience. Yeah, awesome, right? So that sounds good. I mean, you're very similar. So you're you're based in the east, but you work mostly out west on contracts. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. yeah. So the uh, one of the contract companies I work for was actually based out of Colorado Springs. Um, mm-hmm. So we end up getting a phone call, and it's like, hey, you're you're jumping on a plane in the next four hours, going to wherever in, in the country. So I've been all over Pacific Northwest, Southwest. I haven't done any East Coast stuff or Canada stuff yet, but it's been all like Montana, Oregon. Washington, Arizona, spent pretty much all the last season in, in New Mexico. And in like the back of my head, like you never think that there's a lot of trees in New Mexico. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, partly I, I, I learned some geography because there's, there's nothing but national forests way up in the northern part of uh, northern part of the, the state there. So yeah, but, so yeah the yeah. north part's got a lot of mountain, a lot of trees still, you know, the southern tip there, the Rockies. Yeah, a lot of people yep. don't realize that. Yep. Yeah. All right. So as a contract, so how long does your normal fire season lasts for you? So typically we see, we start seeing resource orders and stuff getting out the door, like end of June, beginning of July. Um, and then it'll run almost all the way to like October, November, some years. Last year was, was kind of interesting. We actually got out the door in like April and that was very, very early. Um, and then this year it's been a late season. We're talking stuff really didn't get rolling until end of July, beginning of this month. So it's starting to pick up quite a bit right now. So it's, we see a lot of environmental factors to that, but yeah, yeah that typical typical seasons usually like July to October. Okay, and so what do you do when you're not doing the fun job? Ah, uh, so I, I I still grind on the street a little bit. Um, yeah. I work like 24, 36 hours a week on a on a standard ambulance just to kind of keep keep some skills fresh, but also just to kind of not lose my mind sitting at home being bored. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. That's cool. So your duties working with the fire crews, so you're primarily working like the fire line medic. He's yeah. work out there on the fire lines at the base, both. Um, so we're, Can we're you explain what that is? 
Yeah, Just absolutely. For anybody that doesn't know what a fire, yeah, I guess for all, yeah, yeah, for the rest of the people. I mean, I sort of know, but I'm probably get it wrong. So let's just rely no on the expert that we have here in a captain. Yeah. Tell us what it is. <laughs> I, I don't claim to be an expert, but I, but I, yeah, I've been doing it a minute. <laughs> but all so, right, yeah, all right. is is basically the control line that they're trying to put in um, around where that incident is. And so when we're when we're out on the line, we're usually posted up someplace within that geographical division that they have separated out. So NIMS and ICS all came out of the, the wildland fire industry, at least yeah. the main base of it, which which everybody's aware of. But like when we're when we're out, we're posted to a division. We're responsible for all the crews, um, both heavy equipment, fire the firefighters that are out there, hot shots, all those guys and gals working. We're responsible for their for their safety and any medical emergencies and incidents that happen out there on the line. So there's a couple different resources and assets that work the line. So you have single resource medics, uh, which can be EMTs or paramedics that are posted someplace. To a lot of times they get embedded with crews that are working like off the main roads or off the forest roads. So actually like back hand lines where they're digging like an actual line in the dirt out to kind of get rid of mineral all the way down the mineral soil, so nothing can kind of cross and burn. At least that's the hope <laughs> in jump times. But usually those those single resource medics are embedded with crews someplace. Um, and then you have ambulance crews that'll be posted up like in between divisions and kind of shared between divisions. And then you have your reach and treat teams, your rat teams, which are uh, two-person REMS teams without full like capabilities of like medical kind of pieces of it there. And then you have your four-person REMS team. So um, rapid extrication modules is what what REM stands for, and then they put the S on the end because everything in the uh, in the system is a four letter kind of like designator. So the S is support. <laughs> so, <laughs> but <laughs> so that's that's kind of how, how the layers kind of play out. And then depending on the okay. topography, you might have more rescue teams, you might have less rescue teams. It just it just depends on that kind of kind of area there. Awesome. All right. So, is it how many EMS resources would be dedicated to say a mid to large size fire? Uh, so it's going to be a bunch of people, or is it like a couple? No, it it varies. So usually about a bunch. I, I would go with a bunch as a as a good kind of remedy there because you have the mix of line medics, EMTs, and teams that are out right now. The last incident that I was on had seven rats teams, sixteen ambulances, and something on in the ballpark of like twenty line medics that were working that incident oh wow okay yeah yeah. so that's pretty considerable number yeah. of resources available yeah yeah that also sounds that's, like work that's, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more than i thought it would be but that's yeah that's it's good. a lot of preventative medicine though yeah yeah i imagine a lot of it is yeah. the preventative especially like dehydration yeah uh, i've read a lot of papers particularly especially even some of the wms for our listeners again wellness medical society there's been some research done about just nutrition and hydration on wildland fire crews and how much yeah. that's really important to keep those guys functioning properly. Big time. Yeah. Big time. They're, they're out there digging in the dirt for 12, 13 hours a day on average. Yeah, it's, that's a lot of calories, a lot of energy. Yeah, and if nobody's noticed this summer, it's a little bit warm. So. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no mix is not exactly a good moisture-wicking lightweight apparel either. Not at all. <laughs> no, all right. Not one bit. So how does somebody get into doing this? Yeah, there you go. No, that's a great question. So the, the easiest way is to kind of do like a, a straight up Google search. There's a couple chat groups in Facebook, uh, a couple Instagram pages out there. And there's a ton of companies now that are kind of getting into the game, so to speak. And basically, to kind of start out, got to got to do some research about like who you want to work for, what some of their requirements are. 
there's general base requirements that we will have to meet to be able to work the line. Um, but then there's also like like any place else, there's company specific requirements that they want. But like the the basement that we all have to have is what's called S130, which is wildland firefighting, basic wildland firefighting. It has an online component or an in-person component, so it can be done kind of both ways. And then a field day where you got to actually go dig line, put equipment together, play with like the engines and the hoses, and put in hose lays, all the normal wildland firefighting pieces. Um, the second course we have to have is called L180, which is like wildland fire behavior. And it's looking at like both the personal aspect and then also like the environmental factors. And then there's a uh, S190, which is like the inner, inner kind of twining of a couple of different concepts. And I can't remember what that one is off the top of my head, so I apologize. I should have looked that one up. But those three courses get you your type two wildland firefighter, which is what we all have to be to be able to be out on the line safely. And then once that's completed, we have to do what's called an arduous pack test. So yep. three miles, flat terrain uh, with 45 pounds in under 45 minutes. Yeah, that one we're familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> we have to execute that one working for our government agency. Um, we, well. we use that as the standard for us. So. Yeah. Nice. Yes, that's pretty good. Um, things have changed since first time I ever dabbled a wee bit in a wildland fire, which is good that see that there's much more. You know, for like when I did, it was like a three-day, like, all right, this is wildland firefighting. This is how yeah. you cut a line. This is some, you know, it's just this super down and dirty. And it was more about just making you do work. Yeah. And then like, here's a piece of paper, go forth, do good work. Yeah. And it was like, all right, let's do this. So uh, yeah. that's actually a good thing that people actually have more, at least a formalized educational requirement now with some certificates that people can track and keep up with. So that's, that's obviously a key thing. I know a lot of people hate like, oh, there's one more course I got to take. There's one more certificate I got to maintain. But it's like, yeah, but you want to be considered a professional and work in some of these environments welcome aboard you know it's like just like urban structural fire guys they've got to have their fire one fire two all their apparatus certs it's it's no different than even us that ride you know the urban ambulance is still like you got to maintain all of your stuff you know you can't let your for most places acls pals all those other card courses go even though i think mike and i are in agreement we find them generally useless once you've gotten past your initial certification Right. You know, if your agency doesn't have the proper protocols and training in place, then you need to find something in place else. But whatever. It's a different topic. Yeah. Okay. Not to judge. So are there, is it mostly, I guess this is probably my ignorance. Is most of the EMS for fire crews provided by private companies under contract? I wouldn't say majority. It is a large amount of it. So the Forest Service does have paramedics and EMTs that work for them. Um, they do have some technical rescue crews that are Forest Service specific. And then they have what are called agency cooperators, which are folks that mm-hmm. are basically hired on as seasonal and rostered with an organization that is partnered with the Forest Service to provide support as well. But okay. from my personal experience, a good majority of incidents are covered down by a lot of contractors, especially once you start getting to what we call preparedness level three, four, five which means that the Forest Service resources are basically taxed beyond what they can handle. So that's that's usually when we see a majority of contractors on incidents. But like PL1 and PL2 are a lot of like Forest Service folks and then their cooperators that are that are covering down on a majority of those kind of incidents. Yeah, see, that doesn't surprise me. Just just from Mike and I's general experience with Forest Service, Park Service, et cetera, yeah, there's, there's guys that hold the quals, but there's not that many of them. And so we have yeah. a major incident, especially like a large wildland fire incident those guys get tapped out pretty quick and then 
for a lot of those same agencies, those guys are also the fire crews. So yeah, it's, do you want them to be a firefighter today or do you want to be your incident commander or do you want to be out there on the line as a fire medic? So yeah. Yeah. Contract support doesn't shock me. And as I understand it, it pays pretty decently for those that are interested in doing it. Yeah. It's, it's a nice paycheck for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So aside from your work doing the fire line medic and support of wildland fire, any other wilderness EMS experiences, any other search and rescue experience, things like that you've got? Yeah, I'm on a, I'm on a team here in Pennsylvania. Or not, I wouldn't say we're super active, but for the area, we're pretty busy. Um, we do about like 30, 40 incidents a year doing, doing searches and such. I'm on the board for the National Association for Search and Rescue, and I've been helping mm-hmm. um, kind of put together their wilderness emergency care program. Nice. Um, I teach a lot, both like wilderness medicine, wilderness first responder, um, teach a lot of like AWS classes and such. And then I've, I've recently gotten into like expedition medicine. So I've been taking groups to like Everspace camp and stuff like that every couple of years. Um, doing right. like a medicine kind of kind of trips and things like that. Yeah. Um, not trying to advertise, but like I've pretty much tried to find a way We're to coming. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so advertise. Put it out there, man. You can advertise. Yeah, so, I, so I run Sergeant Rescue Training and Consulting and and I have a have a side podcast that I run called the Rogue Medic Podcast. I'm talking about some of this stuff too. So it was kind of cool to be amongst colleagues, but yeah, that's, so we do a lot of, a lot of wilderness medicine, wilderness search and rescue classes. I do a lot of training throughout the year and bounce all over the country. I taught in Montana last year, um, taught four or five different States coming up and then Florida was a, was a new one, but yeah, it's, it's, it's wild to see where all this can go and then take the, the search and rescue background and add it to like some of these things to make the scenarios more challenging. And such like adding in navigation and actually moving patients over space and stuff like that as yeah. compared to just talking about it. So yeah. we should, I, I try to I try to build some of that into it. And then I, I learned a lot of what I know from my deployments to Afghanistan. I, I basically worked as an independent duty medic. It was me and 80 guys on the side of a mountain in the middle of Afghanistan over over near Pakistan. So it basically we were doing everything from just all the preventative medicine stuff to taking care of the combat injuries. And those things. So I have a pretty well-rounded background, I would say, but I still kind of consider myself like that jack of all trades, like master of none kind of deal yet. And honestly, it, it translates well to the fire line, trying to put all that together, because that's basically what we're seeing. And to some degree outside of the search and rescue space, like the fire line space, other than like the offshore medicine space, is really where true austere medicine kind of occurs, because we're dealing with patients in those environments. And like you guys know from your experiences, like, you know, an hour down the trail of us just walking is like an hour and a half, two hours of trying to carry that person back with yeah. a team. So it's like, there's not a lot of street services that even consider that. And it's translated well for like vehicle accidents with extreme, like extrication kind of situations and stuff like that. We've had a couple that have been like almost two hour extrications on, on 80 when we have some of the big pileups that we have. So mm-hmm. it's it's been pretty neat to kind of see all that kind of translate over in both directions, but yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think there's a lot of, especially guys that have the military background who have seen austere care with limited resources, limited availability of supplies and people to help out definitely translates well to the civilian side, and especially for you moving into like out there on the fire lines and remote fire scenes. It's not like you're on the urban ambulance and you pull up and stage a block away from where the 32 fire yeah. trucks are at. You know, it's like yeah. a completely different <laughs> environment. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah, last incident we had an hour and thirty minutes from Hardball Road to where we were posted back and yeah. forth. So you know, yeah, it's, we're we're out there. <laughs> no, and I think uh, it's a really good observation too about just how some of the being experienced in that austere setting translates over sometimes to the urban side with like those prolonged extrications where you're with yeah. a patient for a lot longer than you're normally used to. I know about a year or two years ago, we had really significant snowstorms down in my jurisdiction, right? And patients were no longer getting a five minutes to your house and 15 minutes down to the hospital. It was like, it would take us a half hour to get to your house. And then it might take us an hour and a half or so to get to the hospital just because of the road conditions and everything else. And assuming we didn't get stuck, yeah. which happened way more than I wanted it to. <laughs> and so being familiar with prolonged field care as a general principle, and then trying to translate that and bring some of the that mindset of thinking about, okay, my patient is very sick, possibly septic, whatever. And okay, this is going to be a much longer transport. What am I going to start doing now that I need to do to get them yeah. going down the right path for that extended time, just in an urban ambulance? So mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of this can be translated to a lot of places. And so that's, it's a good, I will say supplemental, but I don't know how breadth of experience that can really be brought to a lot of different things. So. Yeah, hundred percent. So that's pretty cool. All right. So what do you got, Mike? So I'm, I'm curious what kind of injuries you see as a Fairland medic. Like, is it largely overuse injuries? Is it slips and trips with a chainsaw? Is it fist fighting with a, with a rake <laughs> or a mix of the, I've got to believe that it's not a lot of cardiac events. I'm, I'm guessing you're, and I could be wrong, but I'm guessing most of the folks that are out there cutting line are not exactly in what I would call crummy shape. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, we see a good mix of stuff, to be honest. Yeah. Not a lot of cardiac stuff outside of like certain demographics. So we have not going to dog too bad on the heavy equipment operators, but um, <laughs> probably be hard pressed every now and again to find one that actually passed that pack test before they made it to the line. So that's really our, our high risk for like cardiac community. But yeah, for the most part, we're talking like 18 to like 27 years old uh, is what we're seeing out of like the line crews, the hand crews, even the hotshot crews. Smoke mm-hmm. jumpers are actually a little bit up there. Um, I was working with a with a few guys on this last incident that they're probably in their late forties. I mean, the one guy has been doing it for like 27 years. So that was so what you're wild. saying is there's a chance. There's a chance. There's a chance. It's a pretty remote chance, but it's a chance. But yeah, yeah. We, we see a lot of exertional injuries. Anaphylaxis is huge. Mm. Um, be amazed at how many people are allergic to bees out on the line. We deal with mm. food allergies as well. And all of the overuse stuff, like shoulder injuries, knee injuries, yeah. get some falls. One of the cool ones when my crews had last year was we actually had a bucket strike. Um, so a helicopter that was dumping water, dumped a 600-gallon bucket basically on a, on a crew. They lost their spatial orientation and dumped water on two guys. Dude ended up, one of the dudes ended up blowing out his knee real good. And the other guy had uh, some pretty decent skull fractures and a TBI going on. Wow. Um, and paramedics actually accompanied that patient on a on a hell attack aircraft to the hospital because we couldn't get a medevac like a stand flight flight or something like that into the yeah. same so yeah that's pretty crazy that's one of those huh never thought of that before but yeah 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 got those that's actually a thing water, huh? that'd be pretty crazy yeah, yeah. wow uh, there's there's helicopter crashes every year there was just one in california like we see all that kind of stuff off and on throughout yeah. the season so we see everything from major trauma to bumps, bruises, cuts, and scrapes that we have to deal with, like keeping clean for infection. Because 14 days on the line means maybe like two showers. And yeah. it's just one of those things that we're, we're living dirty. So kind of trying to keep some of those things uh, at bay it can be a problem sometimes. 
Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So I guess you kind of answered some of that, but what would you say has probably been your most challenging call like patient wise that you've had to deal with? Uh, vehicle accidents in the backcountry. Um, yeah. We do a lot of driving. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, we're doing, we do a lot of driving, a lot of driving on really, really crappy roads. Vehicle accidents happen quite frequently. Either like side of the road gives way because of the weight of the vehicle. Somebody's not paying attention. And instead of having, you know, the six feet of extra lane to kind of correct your right off the hillside. Mm-hmm. So like finding creative ways sometimes to get people out of some of these vehicles can be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um had a couple of car accidents where it's like, okay, we need to do some actual significant extrication. And it's like, I got a high lift jack and a pry bar because that's the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's, again, that's one of those things like I never think about, right. With wildland crews, I always think about your general musculoskeletal oh, environmentals, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, that's, that's very, yeah, that's a solid point. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. Talk about having to improvise some stuff. It's like, well, I got a high lift jack, a crowbar and 120 feet of rope. Let's see what we can do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, yeah, that could get pretty sporting. That makes some normal fire guys freak out about NFPA standards with cribbing and stabilization of an overturned yeah. vehicle. Yeah. We're not even going to touch oh, that. Dude, I love yeah. freaking out. I love freaking yeah. out urban fire guys with the things I've said and done in my yeah. life. Yeah. Oh, which is. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned you do not cry. Yeah. Yeah, they would. Well, and since you mentioned it, and we're talking about some fire guys, you know, you mentioned you do some tech rescue work. Yeah. And this is one where Mike and I are also involved with some tech rescue program. Um, Just a little yeah. bit. <laughs> I, I'll throw something out there to make our number one fan, JB, laugh about Mike, but I'm going to leave it. Oh, okay. <laughs> the only and, oh, and you mean patch? because I'm an ITRA level three instructor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. With the patch. That's a whole well, inside thing. But so what are your, you know, what are your experiences doing that kind of work? What are you doing with that? Yeah, I've, I've done both the structural firefighting side where we have all the big gear and all the folks to move it around. Um, it's been awesome, 100% honesty, to see the shift, at least in the REM side of things for the wildfires and some of the some of the field tech rescue that we're doing now to all the lightweight gear. It's, it's amazing to see like that becoming mainstream now. Everybody's kind of realized that, well, I can carry 200 foot of 9 mil for the same weight of 100 foot of like half inch or 11 mil. And it's yeah. playing with all that. Um, and we've done a bunch of talking, at least internally. And basically what we're seeing right now, and I'm sure you guys are understanding it too, is like you're seeing that compression of NFPA not keeping up, OSHA kind of burn its head in there a little bit. And then you got the mountaineering community and the climbing community that are all like, well, we've been doing stuff on these devices for decades and nobody's died. So this yeah. works fire. And it's all that other stuff. And we still execute the same rescue. So all that influence yeah. is meshing right now. And you're seeing unique setups, smaller ropes, new tech in construction, and it's amazing. So we're we're carrying um, nine mil systems right now. We're doing twin tension nine mil using three degrees or or a scarab, um, depending on which uh, which rescuer is there with us. That what tool they pull out of the bag, and then running with like power cord for anchors and and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it's awesome. It's really really fun to see all this space. Yeah, and that's uh, I know because like. My urban guys, you know, they have their tech rescue things. And sometimes when I'll sit there and I'll watch them train, it's like, my God, man, (laughs) all the stuff that they'll strap onto their physical bodies. Yes. And just, you know, giant full body (laughs) harnesses and everything is steel. And yeah, like 12 mil ropes and stuff. It's like, yeah, Lord, people, which is cool if it's being driven to a place on a fire truck. Right. And Mm -hmm. you've got to move it like 50 yards at a kind of a max. But uh, yeah, it's good to hear that you guys are definitely 
you're moving in the right direction. It's I know it's a frustration. Mike's been working for several years. A couple of guys. I don't know. With most us. of my adult life, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. Of trying to push other government agencies away from. Yeah. You can go smaller and lighter now, guys. And yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, there are some groups that. Thing, right. Like you guys got carried out there. It's it's yeah. like, how can I make the same thing work, but keep it light enough that I'm not going to kill myself before I get there? That's that's the game. Well, that's yeah. the big piece, right? So like for Mike and I. Like if we get word that somebody's taken a fall and we think there might be some vertical, semi-vertical stuff, we've got to take our initial kit with us on our back, mm-hmm. you know? And so we generally carry a hundred or so feet at minimum, just because the yeah. tallest of the big faces in our area are only a hundred feet, like only, right? But so we, yeah. if we have a hundred some feet of rope, we're good for 90% of the places. Yeah. And then the rest of it's pretty minimal, but people don't understand. It's like, oh, well, you know, but if you have 12 mil rope, 12, five, a full half inch, Yep. You're so safe, but it's like, yeah, but man, that weighs like an extra three pounds, right? And I've got to carry that. Plus, it takes up space, and my yep. back is only so big, right? So, yep. 100%. yeah, so it's good seeing you guys making that move too to smaller stuff. I know talking to another. Thanks for not sucking. Yeah. <laughs> like, thanks for going the right direction and not. Like, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It was a fight, but. Yeah, we, we must follow high standard <laughs> and stuff. But yeah, I know Mike's got a good friend of his that he works with sometimes. And. The Europeans kind of look at the Americans on some of their, especially the mountaineering wilderness tech yeah. rescue stuff and go like, my God, you're still using that? Like, yeah, yeah, you guys are train wreck. Yeah, you guys better yeah. catch up. Right? So it's it's slow, I know, but yeah. it's good to see you guys doing the right thing with it. So that's yeah. awesome. So I think the next one that I would ask, you've been a wilderness provider, work austere environments with some crazy stuff. You've got all the cool letter things to follow your name, right? I've got most of those as well, right? What do you, in your opinion... From your experiences transitioning urban through the austere wilderness stuff, what are skills you think are most needed for the guys trying to provide wilderness EMS? Those things they need to learn, the skills they need to have before they can really function in those environments. Yeah, well, that's a great one, and that's it's, it's going to be. That's why he asked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, hundred percent honesty. Like I think the assessment skills. Being yeah, there's our to, man old-fashioned manual assessments, doing thorough in-depth questioning, thorough in-depth physical exams, having that like mentality of, I need to find things as compared to just kind of take the little quips that we get on the truck because it's like, hey, the hospital's right there. And then the decision-making process is different, right? It's, it's, do I really need to do this? Not necessarily, can I do this? Like, those are the big things that like when we're teaching like AWS and, and other stuff like that and teaching some of our new line medics, like we're trying to bury that deep into the mentality of we need to do good assessments. We can't shortcut these things because if I don't find it now, two hours into the carry isn't time for this to pop up and me to try and correct. And then out on the line, it's like, okay, well, is this really what we think it is? Or is this something else? Because I didn't do a thorough enough assessment vital sign trending, like understanding what those trends mean um, as compared to just oh, I'm taking vitals at an interval because the book says I'm supposed to, like actually analyzing those is huge. And then just the basics, like I, I know everybody harps, well, you got to know your basics. You got to know them like second nature. I mean, if you, it, whether it's on the line or on the street, that's, that's truly what saves a lot of lives. Uh, if you look at survival rates from the military side of things, and I, I use this number as a comparison quite frequently, and it's you look at the general line medic for infantry regiment in the army versus ranger regiment, right? You still have the same possibility of death from preventable injuries in the infantry units at 
across the board, whether you're an infantry medic or just a or just a line medic with an MP unit. You go to the same type of position, same type of incident, same type of problem with a ranger medic, and that and that's three percent. And one percent of those patients that don't make it, they literally just can't get to. So it's really a two percent loss of life at that point for preventable injuries. It's literally because they drill the basics until they can't get them wrong. It's not because mm-hmm. a special piece of equipment or technology or skill. And I know that's a hot topic in like the wilderness medical like circles and chat groups and stuff like that. Oh, you know, all these cool guy gadgets and things like that to bring standard of care to the backcountry, which is awesome because now we have that capability. But the reality of it is if you still can't assess a patient and figure out the problems and prioritize those problems appropriately, it's that's the biggest skill to have because they're, they're still going to die if I got the, the new band gadget or toy as compared to just doing good care and hypothermia. Like I, I preach hypothermia to the cows come home. It's 90 something degrees outside for us, but you look at the, the curve there and it's like, well, they're significantly hypothermic already. So <laughs> we're killing yeah, that. Yeah. And 90 degrees outside does not equate to remaining 98 degrees on the inside. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And I will tell you that it is, I do math pretty good. <laughs> There's an app for that, man. Now, what I was going to say is it is, it makes me so happy to hear you, who's unaffiliated with us, another wilderness provider, preach those same things because you've been listening to the show. Like you hear my yeah. kind of like, that's what we harp on is. You've got to know your stuff. I don't care if you're an EMT, advanced no. EMT, paramedic. If you don't know all of your foundational fundamental skills, you don't know your pathophys, you don't know your pharmacology, like you're going to miss those things. You're going to improperly treat something. It's good to hear that Mike and I aren't the only voices out there that are aware of these things. And it's, and it's good. It's not that we've heard negatives on the opposite end of that spectrum from anybody, okay. but it's like, it's good to hear that you're just another guy who's found himself in this world and is like, man, these are the things that you really got to be on because, yeah, like you said, it doesn't matter what kind of cool toy you've got. If you haven't figured out what the major problem is, it's not going to fix it for you. You've got to be able to do that. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. And then the last thing is that decision-making process of when not to do something, right? Wow. Understanding like cause and effect. Like, yeah, it's great that potentially paramedics might have RSI in the field someday. Like mm-hmm. that backcountry space. But there are so many secondary complications that come along with that. That if, I, if I'm mm-hmm. not able to manage those things in the field, I'm actually putting the patient at higher risk than just kind of dealing with the crummy airway that I got right now. <laughs> so just to make sure I understand, what you're saying is don't crack the awake alert talking guy? Like if you don't have to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. And I think if you had to have the choice, if you had to have, we'll call it the tube in somebody, wilderness-wise, the crake is the way to go. Yeah, um, it is the and way just to go. Because, yeah. you know, yeah. RSI, there's a big piece of the sedation you have to continue, right? And yeah. If you listen to, there's another podcast that I love, the, the Prolonged Field Care Podcast, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they were talking yeah. about like, hey, why, why don't we choose to intubate over crike? And this is, you know, based around soft medics, right? But it's like, yeah. well, cool. How much ketamine do you carry to keep your guy sedated when he's got a full intubation going up? You know, yeah. when you're looking at hours, maybe days, like you can't keep him sedated long enough. And if you have to have that airway, I think that's something that paramedics get very passionate about intubation and RSI. You know, it's like, that's just... We are who we are when it comes to that skill. It's just like that's what makes a paramedic apparently is the ability to intubate. Yeah. But I think you, you, that's a that's a great analogy you have of just because I can doesn't mean I should. Yeah. Right? Can I keep my patient appropriately sedated, maintain their pain management long enough for this to still be valuable? And you know, as Mike and I have talked about before, it's like okay, that tube's in there. Do you have a vent? If not, 
you better have somebody that's spot on at bagging for uh, yeah. You better really get, be good at bagging because it turns out people suck at that. So. Yeah, all, and all the time. <laughs> and, and, and as you've seen and talked about, like the actual part of carrying the patient somewhere, carrying somebody and bagging at the same time is it's, not gonna uh, it's near impossible. Yeah. Like to do it yeah. well. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, solid points. Yeah, you have to like shuffle and it's just slower than slow. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good. You probably hit on the two biggest points that we could have even asked anybody to do. That was perfect, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, thanks for coming on and supporting our mission. Absolutely. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> All right. And then, so I think the follow up to that would be first, medically speaking, of course, because there's all kinds of kit out there, but what's What's your preferred kind of kit loadout? I mean, you have to go item by item, but generally speaking, what is it you like to have for your general support missions out there for the fire line and such? Yeah, so we we try to do the whole ruck truck kind of go kind of mentality. Yeah. So the ruck is pulled with whatever we're seeing as expecting as like that 80% kind of issues. So we got some normal like massive trauma kind of stuff. So like your tourniquets and things along those lines. We have a basic airway kit with super glottic and a crate kit. If necessary, we can kind of do one or the other. We have general splinting materials, hypothermia materials. I mean, our base weight for that kit is somewhere in the ballpark of like 18 pounds. Add in the fire shelter and you're already at like 28 because that's about mm-hmm. right around 10 pounds itself. So we, we try to go light and fast, but then on the UTV, we'll have another bag with like more of that same kind of stuff for like fluids and like the medications that we know are like not priority medications. So like we have some pain meds, we have Benadryl, um, epinephrine, um, stuff that are like, if I don't use this stuff in that first like point of wounding kind of point of care, that person's going to die kind of stuff and just pain management. So we got fentanyl, ketamine, a little bit of Versed just to kind of keep patients calm. But yeah, we, we're not carrying a ton of stuff and a lot of that stuff can go a long way. And it's one patient at a time. Usually um, it's very rare that you got like the two or three patients that have the same injuries and so on and so forth. So like that stuff in the bag can go a long way um, when you understand what's in it and how to use it appropriately. It's every now and again, like you'll, you'll see some stuff that happens on the line, like crews getting burned over and shelter deployments and stuff like that. Um, luckily we've become more aware of like conditions and pull folks out earlier, but it still happens. And then it's like, okay, well, yeah, I'm one resource, but I'm not the only resource coming to that incident. So we're going to have stuff coming out the wazoo at that point. So like the need, at least in my, in my world of of working, it's usually one patient at a time, right? So we're, we're only packing gear for one patient, restocking from a box that's in a trailer someplace because trying to mail stuff for resupply on the line. It's kind of a pain in the butt. So we have like the box of just random stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's, that's so that. Do you guys carry pain management with you or is it only in the UTV? No. So we'll have pain management in the back. Uh, so if you leave the vehicle, okay. pain management with us. So okay. fentanyl, ketamine, usually what we're carrying yep. for that. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's, it's pretty similar to how we roll as well. I mean, Mike and I have had on a couple occasions where we've had, fortunately, because there's two of us, mm-hmm. um, but we've had a couple occasions where we've had two to three patients, a couple of yeah. them, a couple of those calls. You know, we had two individuals who both pitched off together, we think, doing a little selfie action, gotcha. took a tumble off a waterfall. And so, Ooh. you know, there are two of us for that one. One, So one of each that was on that. And that was, that was, yeah, that was, that was one of our favorite calls. And then we had another one where some folks 
thought they Googled what a wild onion looked like, and it turns out it really wasn't. And so we had yeah. incredibly sick patients. Um, nice. Did you know that if you make dinner with wild Helborg, eventually your entire campsite will end up with a blood pressure of 60 over 40 and people will be projectile vomiting everywhere? Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. We learned that the hard way after we researched this thing. They yeah. Yeah. So we've had, and that's, but that's solid points, right? So like when Mike and yeah. we have last year, the last like really good rescue we had where a patient was like really, it was really bad off. It was definitely one of those because we stage, you know, same thing, the ruck truck principle, right? We use the same stuff. And it's like, hey, when the follow-on guys were coming along behind us, it's like, hey, in the back of the unit, grab our orange other bag because that brings more IV, more trauma. It brings our advanced yeah. airway and brings all that other stuff. And so, yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think a lot of people that uh, I've talked to anecdotally, they try to bring way too much initially. Oh, yeah. And I think at the beginning of every season, Mike and I look at our packs and I'm like, God, what else can we get out of this thing? And it's... <laughs> We're at the point where it's like we really can't take much else out, but we keep trying. But then it's like, I've really got to put that back in. Yeah, it is. It's got to be a balance. Hopefully done. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, so I'm curious about medical direction because you mentioned that you can be told to get on a plane within four hours, be in a different state. There isn't this overarching, like, I'm sure there's doctors out there, but the large majority of doctors don't have, you know, board certification in every state. So, how do you guys handle medical direction? Yeah, so um, we actually have medical directors in all of the states that we operate in. And then okay. some of the medical directors are actually like multi-states board certified. Mm-hmm. Board certified. Uh, so, yeah, makes life easy. So we usually won't go someplace that we can't get direction. And if we don't have direction in a state that we're going to, a lot of times we make some phone calls to some of the hospitals and do like an emergency kind of agreement and contract mm-hmm. with somebody. Um, but for the last two seasons, the Forest Service has kind of been mandating like, hey, you got to have medical direction in the states you're working in, so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Right now, I actually kind of work for six different medical directors and they get together before the season and like, hey, these are our protocols for the season, kind of agree on certain things, what equipment we're going to be carrying. And we do some preseason training with them. So as long as so we, they all get together and QA you together. So it's like a board <laughs> of doctors. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then um, I actually hold four states licenses right now. So I hold a Montana mm-hmm. license because yeah, I can't operate as a paramedic in Montana without that. Um, I have an Arizona license, Pennsylvania license, and a Wyoming license. So two compact licenses and two states that require that license to work in, in that state. So Yeah, that's... I never thought about telling you yeah, having to get administrative overhead. Yeah, I was curious about the medical direction. I was glad Mike asked that. But yeah, it's like, oh, wait. So essentially, do you just go to those states and say, hey, I work, I do this wildland fire and apply for reciprocity? And Yeah, so so we jump through the reciprocity hoops. We have to give all the documentation of like, yeah, we're actually working for a service in the state to get that. And by having that medical director in the state and that contract agreement with the forest service is how we kind of jump through that hoop of having a service in that state california and mm-hmm. one other you actually have to have like a business license as an ambulance service to work in that state so um, yeah. coming through those hoops but once you hit like september october california starts looking the other way a little bit so yeah they start going <laughs> hey the state's on fire yeah yeah, yeah. pretty much <laughs> yeah california is one of those that states that's coming yeah, yeah, yeah California is one of those pain in the ass states when it comes to EMS and yeah. you know mm-hmm. other jurisdictional licensing. Even for fire guys and stuff, they're like, mm-hmm. well, "That's not a Cal Fire. I don't care." Yeah, it's like, "Well, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> do you want the help or not?" So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. All right. So then, could have been going to Canada. I don't oh, know yeah. if that would work. 
I yeah, I have no clue. I, I had family ask about that at one point. Yeah. They're like, so you going out to Canada? I'm like, I, I can't work there. I'm like, my my license yeah. means nothing up there. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the Canadians are like, yeah, we can take your fire guys because come on, hose monkey, let's go mm-hmm. take some high yep. spray yep. water. But yeah, all right. So you know, we've talked about your opinions on basic gear, the assessment in your core skills. But if you could have some of the sexy new stuff that's out there, what would you like to have be able to use out there? For your work so medical gear wise i love the athenas so <laughs> i saw that coming yeah everybody wants it <laughs> it's, it's yeah. nice light it does a majority of the things that we require a monitor to do as far as monitoring because let's be honest like in my space i don't need pacing capabilities all the time should yep. there be that in the in the process or in the layout someplace sure 100 and then like we also kind of play the like the layering game of, okay, well, I'm on, I'm on a fire with an ambulance that has those capabilities. I'm more like an extender. Mm-hmm. So like you can play that game too. But yeah, the Athena would be the big one. The Emma 2 would be another another nice one. But with the Athena having that end title capability, I think that's that's like the the device. I know the price tag's up there. Yeah. Uh, it's like four grand for the unit, but it's 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 just a sexy device to be able to to do that. And then when we're talking long-term transportation and trending and all that kind of fun stuff, it's, I don't have to stop that snail trail unless people mm-hmm. literally need a break to take vitals and stuff like that anymore. So that would be, that would be the perfect device. And then as far as like the rescue side of things, I would love to get down into the eight mils and the eight mm. sets as a regular standard, just because it's, it's almost half the weight of a lot of the stuff we're carrying now. So, but yeah, that's, that's the kind of, kind of where I'm at with that kind of piece of it. Yeah. Well, Again, we 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 hundred percent agree with you, especially on the on the Athenas, the GTXs. Oh, they're nice. We keep trying to get our program to purchase those, and they want to. They just need a little bit more money. Yeah, um, we're only asking for a couple, and I know mm-hmm. government pricing is a little bit different. But yeah, just for, like you said, you know that once you've got somebody packaged up in that Stokes and you're moving down trail, having to stop, expose arms and things like that, yeah. just to get simple things like BPs and everything. It yeah. takes time. Yeah. And as we start approaching for us, our winter season, you know, and it starts to get cold, you don't want to unwrap yeah. these people because, as you mentioned, hypothermia, right? Because mm-hmm. it turns out that it's cold. And I know when I used to teach wilderness medicine stuff, I had almost not quite huge arguments, but, but students like, oh, it's like 90 something out here. It's like, yeah, but the ground is always cold. And people don't yeah. really understand that if you're laying on the ground injured, even in this beautiful hot summer day, you're going to get cold. So now you've got a patient who is injured and you're trying to carry him out who's generating no body heat. Yeah. If I don't have to unwrap that, man, right? Just look at my smart device and like, oh, mm-hmm. your vitals are looking good. It, yep. Yeah, I'm on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the way to go. So that's good. And then they cut in the ground pad to fit the fit the stokes, man, because it's like basically putting them in a hammock and carrying them through the woods. You know, yeah. people forget about that. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's yeah. People always ask me why I'm carrying a pad in my pack. It's like it's not mine. This one's for mm-hmm. the patient. And yep. Yeah, I always I wonder why he's carrying a pad too, mostly so I don't have to carry it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's for my patient, and Mike goes, "Hey man, give me the pad." <laughs> I'm hey man, holding from can you use the pad? That'd be great. Yeah, and yeah, so I've gone through a few, but nice because something. Well, you try to not let them get put in the stokes and disappear on you, but they do. Or you yeah. get that one patient who's bleeding on it, and you're like, "Eh, it's open cell phone. We're probably just going to throw this one away." Mm-hmm. Get a new one. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's good that. Again, like-minded people, you know, you're seeing the same stuff, seeing yeah. the same need for stuff. So that's good. So I'm looking for the day when they got a an even smaller version of that thing. I've heard rumor in the UK that they have like this almost about maybe a little wider than an iPhone, about the same kind of size. Mm-hmm. Um, can do 12 lead monitoring, all that kind of oh, fun yeah. stuff. 
So now uh, there's a it's a German company that makes basically a set of twelve leads to plug into your iPhone and oh, you nice. full twelve lead capability on your phone or an iPad or whatever. Yeah. Well, they make I think they may also make like some Android connections too. But it's okay. Yeah, and they like yeah they've got those in Europe. They are I've heard rumor they're trying to get licensed mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, That'd be cool for stuff, but that'll take again, a while. It always oh does. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, it's, you know, yeah, you run that game. It's like, yeah, sure. I could order one, have it shipped here and throw it on. But then if I really do any serious diagnostic, work with it, it's kind of like, well, what did you use to figure this out? And it's like, hey, <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, I know there's some, some solid stuff out there. That's good. Absolutely. So I don't think I really have too much else. Mike, you got. I don't. I mean, this has been fun. There's no reason we shouldn't hang out sometime, given that you're only in Pennsylvania. Yeah, not far now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything, uh, anything else you want to share with us, Jason? I 100 percent just throwing a plug out there for the community. It's like we're the wildland fire community is always looking for folks that are either going to be on cruises, EMTs. Um, this is one of those spaces that really isn't well known as far as mm-hmm. like for for folks to jump into. Like, hey, I want to work in osteo medicine. Like, you get channeled to like search and rescue, or you get channeled mm-hmm. to like offshore stuff um, or like overseas contracting. And it's like, well, to some degree, we're making the same kind of money as like an overseas contract, but we're still stateside and working like 16 to 21 days at a time. So yeah. it's it's definitely like one of those weird communities that you got to be willing to just kind of disappear <laughs> at random yeah. for a couple months a year. But yeah, it's we're always looking for for folks. And then um, if any any of my colleagues end up listening to this, it's you know, just keep working hard on on getting the basics down because that's what that's what we need out here is is good solid providers like you guys are saying. Yeah. It's that's the main difference between being good in this space and and just kind of being out here is having good solid fundamentals. That's that's really all I got for for that piece of it. Yeah, and God bless yeah. You I mean, I'm it. super excited to hear that there's another job opportunity that doesn't include riding an ambulance and becoming the size of a house. So yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Right. Well, uh, all right. Well, with that, Sean, yeah, we appreciate you coming sense. on. Yeah, and so uh, for those listening, we'll put up some uh, some links for Jason's stuff, his his company. You know, so if you're looking for some training, put his podcast link up there and stuff like that. And so check out our social media when this episode comes out. If you're interested in that, if not, folks, Jason, we really thank you for coming on. And uh, oh, you might become a regular guest just to share some of your experiences, right? So, hey, I I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been great listening to your guys just talk about all the things that we constantly are, are having conversations about outside yeah. of all this. So it's been a great experience for me too, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. Yeah, great. Well, we cool. appreciate it. And uh, with that, folks, uh, I guess we'll see you at the next episode. Yeah, sounds good. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.